Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV, best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. Today's show also brought to you by The Vault at Stock and Barrel in Egan, a collection of specialty and pre-owned firearms for collectors and enthusiasts. Learn more at StockandBarrel.com. Welcome, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this Sunday, November 26th, 2023. I am Rob Dreesline, Managing Editor-Publisher of Outdoor News. Very excited to be with you for the next hour. We're here until 6 o'clock. You might call this a transition weekend. By the way, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. We hosted at our our home a couple sets of parents, uh, uh, all my kids were home, had a great time, and I hope everybody uh, listening out there had a good time too, perhaps on their way home from Thanksgiving weekend festivities, watched a lot of football, enjoyed some great outdoors time. I hope uh, everybody uh, got a little taste of all of those things. Like I say, kind of a transition weekend. We've got a number of seasons wrapping up today as we speak. The 3B uh, deer hunting season, firearms deer season, is done in the southeast. That's the last of the firearms deer hunting in the state. So there won't be any other uh, white-tailed deer taken this year, well, other than, you know, there's some sharpshooting in CWD zones, things like that. But for all intents and purposes, the firearms hunting is done. Now, the muzzleloader season, that kicked off yesterday. And, yeah, I guess that's technically a firearm, too, but that's a, a, a primitive type of firearm, right? And that goes, I believe, two weeks, right? Uh, will that end two weeks from today? I, I believe well, it goes to, like, the 10th, something like that. Look it up, please. Don't, don't go on what I just said. I should have that memorized. Shame on me. A number of waterfall seasons, the duck seasons, are done. If you like to hunt ducks in Minnesota, you're done. Uh, The north zone season ended this past Tuesday, I believe, and the central and south zones ended today. So with uh, sundown now occurring at a a very early time, uh, that 3B hunt for deer is done as well as the waterfall hunting season. So I hope, uh, you know, and, and it's icing up, right? It's getting very cold out there. We'll talk more about ice and ice safety here in a minute perhaps. But, uh, I, you know, the timing's not bad for, you know, this cold spell to hit just as the duck season's end because once things ice up, the ducks bail out. Now, there's lots of Canada goose hunting that will occur through most of the month of December. I think the, I forget the exact dates, but I think like the 21st and part of the state and even a little later uh, in the southern portion of Minnesota. So uh, Canada geese, right, a little bigger. They don't necessarily have to have open water. A lot of field hunting for Canada geese occurs. Uh, throughout the month of December, a lot of hunting down in that Rochester area, well known for uh, for goose hunting. So we got that going on. Uh, we've got next weekend already. We have got the big St. Paul ice fishing and winter sports show. That's over at the River Center, December first to the third. Uh, the biggest ice fishing show in the world, folks, uh, right here in Minnesota. Go figure. Uh, it is a fantastic event. If you have any interest in ice fishing, or if you just like a good show uh, consumer sports show with obviously an outdoors emphasis you can't go wrong going to the st paul ice fishing show a lot of s- consumer shows are you know shrinking a little bit they don't have as many exhibitors as they used to and don't have as many booths that's not the case at that st paul winter sports show it's a good time uh, i'll be down there uh, at least one maybe two days uh, great crowds just a strong vibe because the ice fishing industry continues to grow. Uh, we, we've seen that industry, uh, you know, improve. The technology has improved. And, and so as people can go out and go ice fishing and have a good time, a comfortable time, uh, it's boosted the number of people who want to participate in that sport. 
and and so an event like the St. Paul Ice Fishing Show uh, gets some gets some really good crowds. In a few minutes, we'll have my first guest. Uh, Sushma Reddy is the Breckenridge Chair of Ornithology at the Bell Museum of Natural History. We're going to talk about this story that's blown up in the month of November. Star Tribune had a piece on it. Outdoor News had a piece. I'm going to have an opinion piece in Outdoor News this coming week from Bob Zink, who used to have Sushma's job. He's now in, now in uh, Nebraska. Uh, uh, the topic is the American Ornithological Society has decided uh, that it wants to eliminate human names from all the names of of, of any, any bird that's named after a human in North America, this Ornithological Society, which is the authority apparently on, on naming birds, our feathered friends, wants to remove people's names. And and we will talk uh, in detail with Sushma about that a little bit and get her take on it, why this is happening. Does she think it's a good idea? At the bottom of the hour, the old friend Joe Dugan is going to check in. Joe, uh, formerly it's Pheasants Forever, he's retired now. We're going to take a little walk down memory lane. I don't think I've talked about this in the month of November yet, uh, but it's the 25th anniversary of the passage of Amendment 2, the Right to Hunt and Fish Amendment here in our state. Uh, That uh, passed in 1998, the same election that gave us Jesse Ventura, everybody. We might talk about that. But Joe and I want to talk about what happened in that and just spend a few minutes commemorating it because it was a big deal. It was an important uh, thing that, that happened in Minnesota outdoors history, and, and we'll get into some of those details why. Uh, ice safety. We should talk about that for a moment. Yeah, it's getting cold out there. I see the little pond in my backyard iced over yesterday. Then we got that little tiny thin layer of snow on it that made it look like it was good ice. You could walk on it. No, bad idea. We got a lot of bad ice out there right now. I will say it's going to firm up fast. Uh, you know, I'm seeing temperatures in the teens. You get into northwestern Minnesota, like around Red Lake, I'm seeing single digits. A couple nights, I'm not seeing temperatures above freezing. We're going to make fishable ice and probably on Red Lake by next weekend. They will probably be fishing Red Lake. Uh, and, and there will be a lot of other water bodies in portions of Minnesota where there will be ice fishing. But we need to take it easy down here. I know first ice is some of the best fishing. Uh, and it really is. I truly believe that. But nonetheless, we want to be careful. We don't want people going through ice. We, we want kids, dogs, everybody to be careful around this this fresh ice before we get a good, you know, three, four, five inches walkable ice for going out to ice fishing. Before we break, I, I want to talk briefly. Uh, we've got some deer hunting tallies in. The deer season tally through last Monday. So it didn't include this 3B season that just ended today. Not a lot of deer taken during 3B. I don't know, probably between five and 10,000. We were at 142, 142, 142,142 through all seasons. Uh, that includes uh, the bow hunting season, uh, the crossbow hunting, and the firearms that occurred through last Monday, which, again, is the bulk of the firearms hunting. Uh, source that the DNR told me he figured that we were about 85% complete with harvest. Uh, that uh, so we still we still the three B we've got muzzleloader underway we've got archery crossbow that goes until the end of the year so we're going to kill some more deer. Applying a little math that I learned back in sixth or seventh grade, maybe even earlier, to that one forty two number and eighty five percent, we should be in the ballpark of maybe one sixty seven for the year. If that's the case, that would be down from twenty twenty two, which was that one hundred seventy two thousand two hundred down. What about five thousand? Off the top of my head, that's what a couple two three percent, uh, and and down again from previous year. So we're we're, we're continuing this kind of down unfortunate downward trend 
in deer harvest. Part of that reason is there are fewer doe permits in portions of the state. The DNR doesn't want us killing as many does right now because we need those does to help improve the population next year or the following year. So that's going to impact harvest a little bit this year. License sales down uh, a total of 405,000 sold thus far. Uh, that's down 3% from last year. And that uh, that number is probably the lowest this century. It is the lowest this century. So again, lower deer numbers means uh, less hunting pressure because people aren't as interested in going hunting if they think they don't have as much uh, chance to take a deer. And by the way, we have some early Wisconsin numbers in. Wisconsin's Firearms hunt kicked off last weekend. Early this week, that opening weekend, they were at 92,000 dead deer. That was down 16% from the previous year. If I have more time, I will talk about that more later in the show. But bottom line, yeah, uh, we haven't bounced back. We're not killing as many deer. A lot of folks think uh, the predator load up north has got a lot to do with, with that. I see even Patrick Royce in his uh, turkey column this week uh, called out the DNR mentioned Sarah Stroman for uh, too many wolves in the state and that uh, affecting deer numbers. I don't think a DNR commissioner has ever been named in that turkey column before by Mr. Royce, so I had to point that out. Why don't we get in a break? We will uh, talk uh, talk birds a little bit here. What's going on with the names of birds? You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Rob Dreesline with you here until 6 o'clock. Uh, lots to talk about. We'll have Joe Dugan with us in about 15 minutes. I want to talk to my old friend Joe about the passage of Amendment 2 25 years ago, kind of a the quarter century mark, a good opportunity to reminisce about that a little bit. I want to jump in now on a uh, on a non-game topic. I try to mix it up, not just be casting and blasting here all the time on WCCO Outdoors and talk about a bird-watching topic that, you know, frankly, it's going to affect some game species too. Uh, and here to discuss that right now is I want to hope I get the name right, Sushma Reddy. Sushma is the Breckenridge Chair of Ornithology right here at the Bell Museum of Natural History in St. Paul. She's also the curator of birds there. And Sushma, tell me if I'm wrong, you're also an associate professor in the Fish and Wildlife Department there at the U of M? That's right, Rob. I'm um, both the curator of birds as well as a professor of conservation biology. Well, I appreciate you uh, you calling into the show. And I, by the way, if folks have not been to the Bell Museum, it's a fantastic facility right there off what, Larpenter in Cleveland? Do I have the streets right? That's right. It's a brand new building. Uh, well, we, I guess we've been operational for a few years now. And um, yes, we have re uh, renovated all the, the exhibits that people might remember from their childhood, all the old dioramas, and they look spectacular in the new building, as well as um, including the planetarium. You moved some of those Francis Lee Jaquies uh, art, the, the art dioramas to the new facility. Those are just fantastic. And, and I mean, we could do a whole segment just on the history of, of that artwork. Um, truly amazing. And, and I want to encourage folks to go check that out. We'll circle back to that. But let, let's talk about the topic at hand, Sushma. We've got uh, the American Ornithological Society, I guess, is kind of the authority on naming birds in North America. Is that right? How, 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 did, how did that group, you know, get that authority. Do you know that history? Yeah, so um, the American Ornithological Society, um, in the past, it was two organizations, the American Ornithologists Union mm. um, and the Cooper's Ornithological Society that merged together. Um, and the AOU was um, one of the oldest um, ornithological organizations in North America. 
and um, some. Oh, I'm going to forget dates. I'm terrible That's at fine. remembering That's totally like fine. That so, dates, yeah, we don't but, need um, yeah. <laughs> uh, They published um, a checklist of North American birds. So checklists are usually like golden birds that you can find in a in a particular area. Um, and because it was one of the first ones to kind of compile all of these names, um, and it was created by experts in the field, um, this kind of became the the authority for all other organizations in North America to use. And um, this was more than 100 years ago, I want to say 1870s, oh, wow. okay. uh, that they published the first one. And every year, this organization publishes an update to that um, based on scientific evidence, whether um, we find that there's evidence for new species or um, evidence that um, previous species should be lumped together to, uh, because they're actually just variations of the same species. So, so this group, I, I, tell me if I have the date wrong, I think it was like on November 1st, announced that Basically, all the birds in North America, I think there's like 80 of them, that are named after a person, we're going to sometime in, what, the next year, 18 months, we're going to get rid of those human names once and for all. It's, it's happened kind of nickel and dime. There's been a couple species that we've dropped the, the human name from the name of the bird in the past few years. But we're going to do it all, kind of get it over with here over the next year to 18 months. Uh, the idea is that, well, why don't you explain <laughs> It, do you, sure. what, what what do you think? Sure. What, what What's their and justification should, for this? And, and do you agree with it? Yeah. Um, well, I should say that I'm also the secretary of the AOS. And oh, so well, I'm on go. the executive team that helped make this decision. So okay. I very much agree with it. And I'm actually very proud to be part of this um, historic decision to, to change all the the English names that are named after people. So um, there are two reasons why we're doing this. Um, one, we want to correct past wrongs. Uh, we've realized that some of the names, some of the people associated with these birds uh, have problematic histories. And in some cases, they can be deemed really uh, offensive or exclusionary to some, some communities. And so we want to take away um, that feeling of being excluded. And we want to make sure that um, everyone has access to birds. And so the second reason is really all that, but we also want to engage more people um, and bring in more people who feel like, you know, they can they can um, have a real association, a real connection to birds without having to think about what these names mean and what um, what what the past history was. Uh, we want them to be able to have names of birds that um, draw connection to some of their features or some of the interesting things that they either look like or do. And that way we can also draw in more people to, to feel um, like there's a real connection to something in nature. You know, birds are really what people, um, you know, one of the first things that a lot of people notice about nature. And so we want to make this as accessible as possible, as, as inclusive as possible. Are, are we losing anything in the process, Sushma? I, I think of, and obviously I, I believe there are some names that absolutely need to go. Uh, you know, we, we renamed the, the long-tailed duck, got a new name here right. probably, probably 20 years ago now. That was absolutely necessary. Uh, this, the, 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 the thick-billed longspur, I guess, previously had been named after a former uh, Confederate officer or general. Absolutely get that. Someone that, that was fighting for slavery, uh, we, we don't want, you know, a bird named after that person anymore. I, I, I get that. I'm on board with that. But... You know, this kind of carte blanche sort of uh, approach, 
are, you know, are, are, are some of these birds named after, you know, decent people? I, I think like, you know, the Clark's Nutcracker, for example. And we, I guess we can argue about Lewis and Clark and, and the whole expedition. But at the same time, there's a little bit of soul in that name where I, I think about the Clark's Nutcracker being kind of like a gray jay. They're in the same family. You know, a bird that was probably hanging around that expedition when these guys were crossing the continent. And there's that little touch of history that's associated with that name that I, I feel like you know, we're, we're going to lose that by renaming it. Uh, I, I presume in your yeah. view that's, that's, that's okay, that's worth it, and, and the, well, the ends justify well, the means. Right. Um, so, um, you know, definitely there is a fear that we're going to lose some history. Um, but I think what we're going to gain from it is going to be so tremendous. So um, in some cases, and, and let me answer um, some of the questions as I go along with this. First is, um, you know, there are definitely people, really good people that have birds named after them sure. as well. Mm-hmm. And the decision to change all of them as opposed to just some of them was really that we um, wanted to put the focus back on birds. It would have um, been a long drawn out struggle if we had to go one by one and decide. And, you know, we didn't want to be the, the, uh, ethics police for, for, uh, and we would be a reflection of this slice of time, right? And so we didn't want to um, have long arguments about whether or not someone was worthy of having a bird named after them, and then what would be the cutoff? And we couldn't, you know, there wouldn't be an objective cutoff for this. And so the decision to, um, to, to rename all of them was just a very straightforward decision saying, you know what? I think it should, we should, we think it should be about the birds. The focus should be on the birds and not the people. And yep. losing history is um, is something that um, we have been um, trying to figure out the best way to handle. And we think that what we will get out of it is going to be so much more. So um, if I can go back to what we're doing is we're changing all the names, but we're also changing the process in which we choose these names. And um, there'll be a new committee that will that will consist of ornithologists, but also people who are experts in other fields and uh, social sciences and in communication so that we can bring in other um, interest groups into the naming process. But the most exciting thing for me in, uh, uh, personally is that we're also going to be involving the public in the process. And so we think that this will be this really incredible opportunity for us to have a educational and scientific initiative that will bring together people and their interest in birds, um, come up with creative names for these birds, and we'll, along the way, um, as we change each name, we'll also have an opportunity to go into the history to, um, you know, really uh, dig deep into who the people were that these birds were named after, who were the people naming the birds in the first place, um, and uh, kind of document this change in in names as we go along. And so we think that history will get preserved in this process. We also think that uh, by involving the public and and making this um, a more inclusive process than it has ever been. So taxonomy doesn't usually work this way, right? Um, And so we're really excited about the possibilities of of what we can do with this. We can really bring in a lot more people, get people excited about uh, thinking about new names and get people excited about contributing to the process of science. Sashma, you're talking about bringing people and getting them involved, but but didn't the governing board on this pretty much just decide this is what was going to happen? It, it, there was no vote of AOS members, correct? 
there wasn't. Um, and that, but that wasn't that, that didn't mean that we didn't get a lot of input from AOS members along the way. So we've had several opportunities where people have voiced their opinions about things. We had um, we had uh, a community congress where there were different factions of um, the community that used bird names. And we've had opportunities um, and, and surveys that we've done to, to really bring this, um, this to, to bring members' feelings uh, up. Uh, but, you know, one of the reasons we decided to not do a vote was um, we have, we had a, a ad hoc committee that made these recommendations. And that committee took um, about nine months, and really, um, this committee was representative of our members, and it also had some outside members. Because honestly, one thing we excuse me, one thing we realized in this process is just what an impact um, English names have, uh, uh, English bird names have on the rest of the community, the people that are um, outside of the membership of AOS, and so um, we really needed to think about all the people affected, not just um, the opinion of our members. And okay. so we brought in people from um, different factions and this committee, this ad hoc committee that was considering what to do because this um, well, is honestly one of the most controversial topics that has hit oh, ornithology. No yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, they, they had people who came in with all different opinions when the committee was first formed and they really put a lot of effort into uh, thinking about all the different possibilities, considering all the different um, perspectives. And um, it's a it's a really tremendous report. If, uh, if people want to, they're welcome to read the full report. Yeah, so we're, we're, starting, we're starting to run out of time. Where can folks see that report? Yeah. It's on the website of the American Ornithological Society, so AmericanOrnithology.org. Um, and it's, um, you know, what we felt was that the, the time that it took the committee to, to really consider all these perspectives and make this decision was really important to, to kind of bring in a, a unified message. And, you know, um, it was incredible that they all came with very different perspectives and all, you know, almost all of them agreed that the right decision was to change all the names. All right. Well, Sushma, I wish I had more time to dig into this deeper. It's a great topic, uh, and I'm, it definitely sounds like a lot of deep thought went into this. This was not something that uh, you folks did spontaneously. Uh, one more time, if folks want to see that report, American Ornithological Society, just Google it up and go to the website. And, and I, I, I looked at it myself the other day. It seemed like it was, uh, it was, it was front and center. It's not like you're trying to bury it in the website somewhere. No, no, we realize this is a topic that a lot of people are feeling very passionate about. And um, I just want to make one correction. We do think that this process will take a lot of time and effort. And so uh, it will definitely take more than 18 months to change all the names. But the pilot program will probably take the next year or so for us to, to really develop this process and, and smooth out all the kinks. But we're really excited for it moving forward. Yeah, we've got, we've, got, we've got 80 birds in North America and then what, another 100 through Latin America, South America? Yes, roughly that. Um, and we're working with people in local communities and um, across uh, uh, Central and South America to, to really be able to give um, give the local communities an opportunity to decide for themselves how they want to change names. Thank you so much for calling in on a Sunday evening and explaining some of this. Uh, I want to encourage folks to go to that American Ornithological Society to learn more. And please go and check out our Bell Museum where Sushma is, uh, works and it is the Curative Bur Birds. is a fantastic facility. We're lucky to have it here in Minnesota. We're lucky to have public employees like you, Sushma. Thanks so much.
Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Sushman Reddy, she is at the Breckenridge Chair of Ornithology and Curator of, Curator of Birds at the Bell Museum of Natural History. We're going to break. We're going to uh, do a little walk down memory lane with my friend Joe Dugan when we return. Talk about Amendment 2, its passage back in 1998. I'm Rob Dreesline, and this is WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Rob Dreesline with you here till the top of the hour. We are live and local, having a good time. I've got some thoughts uh, about my last interview that uh, I hope to uh, come back to maybe in our last segment of this week's show. Appreciate appreciate Sushma Reddy joining us uh, on the broadcast live here this evening. I want to circle back to the past a little bit and talk about something that happened 25 years ago. It's hard to believe. Uh, That's when Amendment 2 passed via ballot initiative in November 1998. I ran a commentary on that topic this week in the the print edition of Outdoor News. If you you subscribe to Outdoor News, you saw it. It was written by a gentleman who joins us now, my old friend Joe Dugan. Joe, are you with us? Yeah. Hi, Rob. How are you? Great, great. Thanks, uh, thanks a lot for calling in. Especially when I know you're uh, probably traveling, uh, returning from uh, from uh, Thanksgiving. Hope you had a good time. You're out west, right? Any? Uh, did you do any hunting while you were out there? Yeah, I. Uh, my daughter lives in Bozeman. We we're out there to see her for Thanksgiving, and I did get a little bit of pheasant hunting in on the way out and on the way back. And I was lucky enough to get a couple birds. Good, good. Uh, were you in? Were you hunting Montana? I, one thing I like about hunting Montana it seems like you usually kick up a few uh, Hungarian partridge out there too. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I didn't see any hunts. I saw some sharp tails, um, but uh, I only I only went out twice for uh, short walks each time. But it's big, wide open country, and I really enjoy it. I've been able to hunt Montana a number of times in the past few years. Good. Well, hey, we've got a few minutes here, and I appreciated you filing that piece with me, Joe, kind of looking back. Amendment 2 was was a big deal, and the the way the sporting community geared up to pass that, uh, I, I think we need to circle back and just remember it a little bit 25 years later. Uh, because even though I'm, I'm, I, I sometimes wonder what Amendment 2 accomplished in terms of you know protecting the right to hunt and fish, I don't even know if it's ever been challenged in court, if it's ever been used in court. But it definitely galvanized the sporting community to accomplish some other great things, and that's kind of what you explained in your in your commentary a little bit this week. Why is why is Amendment Two so important to Joe Dugan? Well, I uh, kind of the impetus behind it was um, kind of seeing what was going on across the country and in some states and a very loud vocal voice, uh, anti-hunting, um, uh, anti-fishing. Um, uh, there's folks that were thinking that, you know, this, this is something that we shouldn't be allowing, you know, in modern times. And, um, <clears throat> and, and a lot of people feel differently about it. In fact, uh, we decided to organize and seek some type of legislative protection, which we decided after uh, and this is a group of us, a number of people. Um, we tried for a constitutional law amendment, which is the highest law of the land in the state, and um, we had some great folks involved. But <clears throat> what was interesting, we we kind of launched the effort in about '93, and uh, we had. 
uh, folks probably remember Bob Lassard, Senator Bob Lassard, um, and Representative Mark Colson was the lead author in the House side, um, launched it, and we had a long up-and-down battle, um, a lot of peaks and valleys, and uh, finally the inertia, everybody got behind it, and I won't say everybody, but a lot of people did, and were very outspoken, and um, it was on the ballot in 1998 and passed by about 78%, which uh, at that time was the highest <coughs> that that year, and I think one of the highest ever for oh, it has to be. a constitutional amendment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no question. And um, it, it uh, sent a resounding message um, across Minnesota and, and actually across the nation that uh, folks, uh, the time-honored traditions of hunting and fishing and taking game um, were respected and, in, and, and, and fully endorsed by the public. And um, which was, we really had, you know, a lot of people were naysayers. Um, a lot of folks were thinking that, you know, what if it doesn't pass, you're going to set back hunting and fishing. Right. Uh, and, 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 and the opposite happened. And in fact, um, I think it surprised uh, a lot of folks. We had done some polling and we didn't know it would be that high, but we had, we, we felt we had, you know, the numbers with us uh, from the polling that we had done, but it's always when you get into the final days up and, and then there was ads running against it and right. for it. And, and um, uh, it was a tense, you know, you know, last few weeks, but you, I think key thing that that did, Rob, was it sent a message in Minnesota, but also nationally, as I mentioned, you know, since that passed in 1998, I don't have the exact number, but it's about 20 states have likewise. I think it's at least that, Joe. I think it might be, I I think it might be more. Yeah. And, and and to my knowledge, the only state that it did not succeed was in Arizona. And my understanding, they just had a really poor campaign, but hmm. um, it's uh Every state except that has passed it, and um, and, and I, I find it refreshing that people acknowledge and appreciate, you know, uh, the, the, the hunting and fishing traditions and heritage that goes till, you know, <clears throat> before our constitutional amendment. Joe, wait, <laughs> U.S. constitutional amendment. We just got a couple minutes left here, but I, I want to make the point to have you speak to it a little bit that without Amendment Two passing in '98, I'm not. I don't think. The sales tax dedication, which has benefited every Minnesotan in the form of better an improved environment in this state, I don't think that passes ten years later. Well, what do you think? Well, I, it, it, the group that launched the effort to pass the the Legacy Amendment, which be, became known as the Legacy Amendment over a period of times, was launched by the same people that launched yep. the Right to Hunt and Fish, yep. and. Um, it was uh, that was also a, a tough uphill battle. It almost got passed a couple times, but there was some politics as in, in every issue, um, and it finally passed in nineteen ninety or in two thousand eight. But yeah, the table was set by the folks that passed the right to hunt and fish. And there's there's if anybody knows the history or looks at it, we'll we'll come to discover that. In fact, Senator uh, Richard Cohen from St. Paul, who was uh, uh, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee uh, when it passed, um, and he was a big champion of the arts component right. of the of the of that constitutional amendment of that of the the 
money going to the arts. And um, there was quite a controversy at one time whether that should be included or not. And Senator Cohen was a leader in the Senate, and he helped get the whole thing moving. And to this day, if you were to talk to him, he would say the same, that the the hunting and fishing committee was the group that got this thing rolling. Yeah, yeah. No, and some, you know, Larry Pogamiller, very key uh, in in getting uh, the legacy thing done. Uh, and we should, you know, we should mention uh, our old friend Jim Clatt. Uh, you, you and Jim oh, were probably yeah. the two most important people in getting Amendment Two done. And uh, we lost Jim here a few years ago, a former Outdoor Newsman of the Year like yourself. And uh, you know, rest in peace, Jim. But we we probably wouldn't be having this conversation if it hadn't been for Jim and and, and a lot of other people that that you worked with, Joe. Yeah, there there was a lot of people that got involved, and um, it, because it was important to people, and um, particularly in this state where these activities are are kind of our culture and to, and to many people, a way of life, and. Um, they saw some of the threats, and they also thought, you know, let's speak up for what we believe in. And the public did in, yep. in a resounding manner, and Absolutely. it was very gratifying. Yeah. Well, Joe, thank you for all you did to help pull that off. Thanks for all you're still doing and working behind the scenes on behalf of conservation here in Minnesota and beyond. Um, Joe, thanks for calling in, and have a great uh, have safe travels, and have a great week ahead. Thank you. All See right. you, Rob. Yeah, take care. as a friend, Joe Dugan formerly of Pheasants Forever, but uh, still working hard for conservation. Uh, and like I say, w- Amendment 2 would not have passed without uh, Joe Dugan, Jim Clatt, uh, and a number of other uh, hardcore caster and blaster conservationists here in Minnesota. Let's break. Uh, some closing thoughts before we wrap up this week's installment of WCCO Outdoors. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Rob Dreesline here, final segment of this week's broadcast. A couple quick closing thoughts. Again, I appreciated Sushma Reddy from uh, the Bell Museum joining us talking about this American Ornithological Society plan to rename as many as 80 different species of birds that are currently named after people. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy around this. Bob Zink, who writes for me in Outdoor News, has got a piece coming up this week. He's not happy with it and how the process has unfolded. Uh, I, you know, I I have some mixed feelings on it. Like I say, there's some birds I definitely think should be renamed. There's others where I'm like, uh, why? Uh, if, if this person is as is good. Per- yeah. Take like the Stellar's Eider. Uh, you know, I, the Stellar guy was like someone who did all sorts of natural history research in, I believe, the uh, uh, around Alaska, uh, uh, Siberia. Uh, and so there were several species named after him. Uh, you know, this guy did a lot to uh, improve improve natural history and science. Uh, why would why would you rename it? Uh, I, I I suppose the society part of their thinking is that why nickel and dime this for decades? Let's let's do it all at once and get it over with, and then in, maybe in three four years the controversy dies down and we can all move on with our lives. I also kind of understand that. You know, naming a creature that's been around for tens of thousands of years or more after one person who uh, documented it or cited it, you know, for maybe a matter of days or weeks or months, you know, I, I get it. That's a little ridiculous, too. But, but I also feel like we're losing something. We're losing a little soul in, in these some of these names and some of the history when we just automatically wipe them out, wipe out uh, these names. So I have mixed feelings on it. Maybe I'll get Bob Zink to call in, and he'll maybe provide a bit of a counterpoint uh, to what we heard from uh, 
from Sushma Reddy today, and, and she laid it out very well and very clearly and professionally. I appreciate her joining us on the broadcast. Final thoughts, some chronic wasted disease uh, information. On Wednesday, we had, I believe, 20 new cases in Minnesota. And, of course, if you listen to the show last week or the week before, I was going on and on about how great we're doing in Minnesota compared to Wisconsin. Kind of a me-and-my-big-mouth moment a little bit. Uh, 20 positives in one day, that increased the number of positives we've got in the history of Minnesota by 10%, 9%, 10% in a day. Uh, And we've got hundreds and hundreds more tests pending. We're going to probably find more. Most of these, I think, were down in southeast Minnesota. Very disappointing. That's uh, where I hunt, where I hail from. Also, chronic wasted disease discovered in a mule deer in Yellowstone National Park this past week. For the first time ever, we've got CWD in Yellowstone. I mean, that's... That's tragic, right? Uh, the the heart and soul of uh, of American elk populations, right there in that national park. Maybe the predators will help keep it down. They certainly got those out there. I'm out of time. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Rob Dreesline signing off for WCCO Outdoors.